an unbelieving world will always look at the Christians in the Colosseum and say, goodness, you know, you seem to be taking this a little too seriously. Um, you seem to be a little too intent on this. And if you just chilled out a little bit, maybe we could have gotten you out earlier. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, here today, as always, with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of Christ Church Anglican in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful. Yeah, doing great, Nick. Thanks. You all uh, kicking off slates of fall formation offerings this few weeks like we are? What do you all have at your church going on this fall? Wait, wait, fall formation offerings? Right. Like you're trying to get people to give you money for no no like we are offering them formation opportunities oh you're offering to them okay <laughs> it's fall time to give more money to church that's coming up yeah yeah <laughs> well, we're doing that too that's great yeah we're not starting till uh till sorry early september but i guess it is august yeah we've got a whole um slate of things we're teaching um ted and i are teaching through uh Romans for the entire year. Uh, and there's cool. been some complaining about that because it seems to be uh, too long to spend on one book. And I remind them that Martin Lloyd-Jones spent 17 <laughs> right. years on the book. And so I said, you're getting off lucky because uh, <laughs> we're only doing, we're doing half a chapter a week, which is still, um, I mean, that's a heavy lifting. Are you right doing now. teaching or teaching mean or preaching? Is this a Sunday teaching, school thing? Teaching, or Sunday school. Well, okay, okay. it's for a men's, men's uh, Bible study and a breakfast Bible study, but we're, um, and I think it's fair enough to say, I told people that if they are uh, consider themselves uh, like a, a, a Christian and they haven't spent any time in um, Romans in any um, sort of official way uh, or structured way, then they're, um, they're malnourished, you know, that they're still, they're still drinking milk to a certain degree because it's impossible to, to fully appreciate the breadth and depth of, of uh, the Christian tradition without engaging Romans uh, to some degree, you know, obviously um, you could read it your whole life and um, still not <laughs> halfway understand it, but so, yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's our main, our main um, sort of new offering uh, this fall, which I'm looking forward to. And Matt, my impression is that your church is studying six to eight books of the Bible at any one time. <laughs> yeah, right. Bible studies all through the week. And so yeah, right now in the, we're doing, we're in the middle of a, series through the minor prophets on tuesday morning and then um friday morning bible study we're doing the same thing you are romans uh we're doing it with our men too yeah yeah so maybe it's the spirit is moving the church that's right, right. right yeah. he's doing so, a new thing by bringing us back <laughs> the actual oldest so, thing right that's right and I, yeah and so the big thing I, i've got to decide to preach on because i finished john after three years mm. so i got to I don't know where I'm going next yet. And I, I, I told myself I'd just take the whole vacation and think about it and make a decision, but I still don't know. Why don't you just do 40 days of purpose? That, <laughs> I didn't think about that. There, there you go. 40 weeks, exactly 40 do. weeks of purpose. Right. 40, that's, our old, that's almost your whole year right there. And then you could do Jesus calling for kids right, right, on the alternative right. Sundays. Expositing. Um, <laughs> you even know her name. I do. I, I, I thought do it was anonymously written, like the cloud of unknowing, like it was just dropped oh, no, out. Of mystic, Sarah mystic. Uh, Young. I mean, she goes. She Jesus it, spoke to her every morning. It dropped and out strangely, of. Strangely, he sounds like a forty-year-old woman. That's right. I thought it just dropped fully formed out of the cloud right, of gold right, right. dust, um, and and formally, uh, yeah. Anyway, we we should pull back from that. Um, <laughs> 
Well, there's no smooth transition to what we wanted to talk about as our main topic this week, but certainly the thing at the forefront of everyone's mind, perhaps everyone in the world, is the Taliban's retaking of the major cities in Afghanistan and the need to rescue American citizens, Christians, and at-risk Afghans from those cities and what this might mean for the future of the Afghan people. Now, as Christians, and as ministers, this brings up a specific set of questions for us. We're, the three of us, not experts in p- public policy, and we'll probably avoid talking too much about what America was doing there, whether or not it was successful, and the ins and outs of the decision to leave and the way that that was handled. Suffice it to say, it seems like a complete disaster right now. Many people are desperate to get out of the country before fundamentalist Muslims impose Sharia law on everyone. So the questions we wanted to consider today are questions like, is God in control? Is he sovereign, even over a situation like this one? Why would he let his missionaries be sent into such deadly danger? And speaking of missionaries, how are we con- how are we to consider the call to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth when sometimes the ends of the earth want to kill preachers of the gospel? In these last few years, We've been hearing more and more accusations that preaching the gospel to other cultures, especially ones that might be hostile to it, is actually just a form of colonialism and should be avoided altogether. So guys, where do you want to start today? What were some of your first thoughts, specifically as a Christian, watching what's happening in Afghanistan right now? I was shocked by the whole, the visual aspect of it. I mean, they're just they're so desperate to get out of there, so desperate to be uh, to be safe. And then, of course, if you know, if you're a Christian, you have access to Christian media, Christian websites. And and there you have people who are in contact with missionaries who are uh, stranded, basically, and and sheltering in place and and some who have made the decision to stay, even if escape is possible. Um, and I can understand that. I mean, they've, they've, they've spent some time there. They've developed, I'm not sure if it's a congregation, but they've developed people who are converted. And, and what would it say to those new believers if the missionary who shared the gospel with them, you know, deserted them? So some, some missionaries are making the choice to stay um, and die. Just, I couldn't help but think, though, that this is, this is not, this is not a, a, a new thing for missionaries. This is not a new thing for, for Christians. Uh, what happened when Islam began sweeping through the East and the uh, what seventh century AD? I mean, you, Christianity was well established in Egypt, um, in far into into where modern day Iraq and Iran and other places. Yeah, Persia, uh, sure. Persia, yeah, yeah. Christianity was well established in those places when Islam began to just metastasize, and you had the same kind of devastation, right, where the conquest by sword. Um, Christians were sometimes treated mercifully and given kind of the status as, as people of the book but you know of course not not privileged status but <laughs> they were allowed to live so long as they didn't uh, try to convert muslims but this is this is this is this clash between um islam and christianity has been going on since then um and this is the latest duration of it i i don't i think that uh Sometimes that clash has been joined in the Christian side with a sword, but it doesn't have to be. We, we want Muslims to become Christian. We want, we want people who don't believe in Jesus to believe in Jesus. Um, and sometimes that desire and that, that God-given, Christ-given commission uh, to make disciples 
uh, will cause um, those who make disciples to risk their lives and die. Um, but you know, in in, in uh, throughout history, what, what's been the what's been the what has been the the result of that? Well, it's generally been uh, that the blood of the martyrs has been the lifeblood of the church. That it's been it's, it, that has been that has resulted in God using their lives and their and their preached word um, to bring more people to faith. Mm-hmm. Well, I had, uh, um, I mean, I have, I share those sentiments with you and those observations I think are apt um, and certainly um, am praying uh, with the church united around the world for um, not just the missionaries that are staying in the Christian congregation, but just the people in general um, who are now um, have had the protection of a, of a Western uh, power uh, removed and, um, you know, left to the own devices of, uh, of, um, you know, at the very least a a network of, um, of non-Western tribes. Um, You know, I mean, the argument's been made that Afghanistan as a country uh, didn't really exist, you know, that we tried to sort of, we were sort of imposing a unification on a, on a bunch of disparate people that was part of the problem in the first place. But nevertheless, like when I watched um, the footage, one of the things I was struck by in the juxtaposition between the East and, or not the East, but, but at the very least the, the, the modern Western iteration was the fact that you had these overwhelmingly, these men that were fleeing one ostensibly imagines their wives and children or their otherwise their responsibility in, in the, in the attempt in the face of the oncoming Taliban onslaught, um, you know, you look at the pictures of the of the men trying to get on the airplane, of climbing up the um, the uh, uh, on ramp at the airport, and you know the the sort of contrast between the millennia of being wrought in Western Judeo Christian civilization of uh, you know women and children first, you right. know, and all that that represents. Um, uh, that it was visibly juxtaposed between um, every man for himself. Um, I just couldn't help but but think about that as I was thinking about just the 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 long sort of um, generational uh, millennial um, sort of carving out of of a uh, sort of a culture a uh, a group of people in the West um, who you know whether it's it's believed from a from a Christian perspective or not at the very least from from a cultural foundational perspective has just has been formed in in quite a different way than um, than those who have not been sort of influenced by the the Christian uh, the Christian message for lack of a better word um, and I just couldn't help it but think about that it's probably and it's probably because I'm in the middle of reading through finally Tom Holland's book Dominion you know which talks about the the sort of juxtaposition between the sort of mores of the ancient world uh, over against what was um, what was brought to the world through uh, the preaching of Christ but it was you know when I look at that it was that you know the the idea that we could um, we could impose from the outside in um, some of the um, well, for lack of a better word, moral constraints and expectations of a quote unquote Western society on a unwilling populace. I think you know um, was quick, quickly and surprisingly fast uh, proven to be a fool's errand. You know, I mean, I think it was we were hoping that perhaps some of them would have the valor for uh, you know some of them would show some uh, courage in the face of fire. Some of them would would have quote unquote learned something of um, the, the the beauty of self sacrifice for 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 neighbor in the face of persecution. And yet, you know, what we saw was 
basically, um, you know, uh, sort of mass uh, surrender, um, if not just just retreat. And again, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of sort of policy things that I mean, that people have a lot more insight into than I do. But from a from a Christian perspective, I thought that, um, you know, it was just it, it was reiterated to me the 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 sort of patronage that we have received from uh, millennia of cultural influence over uh, that has been genuine, generally uh, rooted in a uh, worldview, a Christian worldview over against, um, you know, one that, that was different. And again, I mean, the, the people would say that that's a, um, that, well, people have things to say about that, but that, that's where my initial reaction was to, to watching the predominantly the men, you know, abandoning family country and obligation for uh, the sake of their own skin well, um, that was just that'll be seared in my in my uh, mind going forward. Fifty thousand Afghans died defending their country against the Taliban over the last you know, I don't know how many years it was. But uh, so there, you know, there were, I, mean, I wouldn't want to say that the whole the, the nation is is was not was it was characterized by what we saw in those these last few days. I mean, it was, but but I but I I do agree. Um, that the relationship between male and female within Islam is a corruption, I mean, and a, a, a counterfeit of, of, the, of the genuine picture that God's trying to paint in marriage and in male-female relationships in the church that we see in scripture, which is Christ and his church. I mean, Christ would never, of course, leave his bride <laughs> in her hut while he, you know, runs after the C-17 on the tarmac. So yeah, there's, a, there's, a, there's definitely an inversion of that, of that vision. Yeah. And I think, and I, yeah, I mean, I agree with that. And I did listen to someone saying that, you know, not only pointing to the sacrifice that the Afghani um, um, sort of, what what do they call the Afghan military security force uh, force, had made. um, And I don't want to, don't want to discount that. And, you know, when someone was given the opportunity to, or or told that all of your support structure that you've had for 20 years is being removed, you know, in, in six hours, um, have fun with, you know, so I, I I appreciate that. And so I don't want to, I don't want to overplay that, but, but I do think that, like with, with what you said, I think that what we are witnessing is even in our with withdrawal from Afghanistan, a sort of lack of confidence in sort of the initial idealism, at the very least, that even brought us there in the first place. Now, of course, we came after 9-11 where we were um, seeking for the people that, that caused that, but there was still underlying under line most of american military involvement at least in the 20th century as far as i can tell was still an idealism about freedom and democracy and individual rights and humanitarian efforts and and, and you know liberation from from quote unquote oppressive um you know religious ideologies if for, for lack of a better word that that you know i think that there's a certain cynicism and i and a, and i think in a certain temperature of I think cynicism is the best word that I think even undergirds a lot of people's like, well, we hope we wish it had been different, but, but what are we really supposed to do sort of idea? Um, and again, I'm caught because, you know, there's a part of me still that is infused with Rocky four um, and worlds colliding and, you know, Ivan Drago and Rocky face to face and that wonderful Isn't that Rocky three. Yeah. No, Ivan Drago is Rocky four. Rocky three sure. is clever lane. Yeah. I mean, Really? You have to pull up the old IMDb on the phone. I will, I will give, I will give. Here. This is very important. 
I will give, I will, I will, there's no amount of money I would not sacrifice to bet to you. Rocky four is, is Ivan Drago and Clubber Lane's Rocky three. Rocky two is where he rematches with Apollo Creed. Rocky okay, one okay, is where he yeah, should have right. won at the you're end, right. but he you're right. Okay. You got it. That's oh, right. Looks like Chaney's and, um, got it. Chaney's right. I am Tommy, Tommy Gunn was Rocky five. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so, anyway. I, I agree with you. Okay. So, but I think this is interesting. I mean, and, and we may learn, like, we might learn, might pay to learn some lessons from this because you know in, in the old colonial model was okay well before these people can actually become christians they need to actually become westerners they need to know uh how to speak english or whatever the language was they know how to need to know how to sing our hymns dress in our clothing uh live as we live and then you know then they'll make then the gospel makes sense to them and I, I i don't think the same thing was happening in afghanistan but there but there was a sense that you know, these people would be better off if they had our culture, if they had our, if they, if they had our understanding of liberal democracy. Right. So we flew off. the pride flag so, and the Black Lives Matter flag right, of our embassy right. Those, and we exactly. shamed them that they didn't think men <laughs> could become women and vice versa. Right. But unless they get, so, so we, we had a choice. I, mean, I was reading an article the other day, I forget who wrote it, but uh, we had a choice when we first entered, do we want to restore the monarchy, which had some legitimacy it was, there was an actual popularly supported monarchy in Afghanistan before, you know, earlier in the, you know, long, long ago. Um, do we want to restore that or do we want to put together a new kind of government the Afghans have never known? And we decided mm. in the latter. And it was, you know, kind of doomed from the, from the start because of that. It had no, it had no inherent legitimacy. But mm. I think we have this kind of hubris in thinking that every culture and every place should have our governmental form. Right. Um, I don't think it's hubris to say every culture and every place should have our Christ. The great thing about actual genuine missions is that Christ you find is is able uh, to transcend culture and be imminent in every culture in, in different ways. I mean, so you you don't have to become an Englishman to become <laughs> to become a Christian. Right. You can you can be a better Afghan as a Christian. You can be uh, apart from Christianity, but you don't have to be an American to be a <laughs> right. You don't need to become a, an American Afghan to be a Christian. You can be a Christian within your own culture, because Christ is is the word. The word is so powerful and so transcendent that it it can transform within without having to be imposed from without. Right. Well, I think that goes back to your initial or one of your reflections about the uh, perversion of male female relationship within certain understandings of Islam. Because, you know, one of the I agree with you that, you know, the early missionaries that tried to westernize, quote unquote, um, the people that they um, were evangelizing, um, you know, there was a certain amount of success there. But they thankfully, with relative speed, abandoned that. And then you had, you know, you see like in our own um, uh, Lambeth uh, bishops or Gafcon bishops, you know, the second, third generations of um, of Anglican missionary efforts are almost all indigenous um, people, you know, people from all the various types, tribes, tongues and languages and nations, which is beautiful to see. Um, but I do think this points to a, uh, you know, one of the rubs, as it were, of a uh, Christian proclamation over against a secular Western liberalism, which is that the the renovation of the heart, as it were, from a Christian perspective, begins in the most intimate of relations, um, which is starts with the reconciliation of men and women. 
you know, this is where it begins. I mean, the, we've talked about before the, the, the splitting of the image of God, the atom bomb explosion at the heart of the fall was um, Adam and Eve and the curse turning on each other. And all of a sudden, all of the good things of God were turned into exacerbations of um, hidden God, you know, of, of the curse. And so child, everything from childbearing to work, to responsibility, to, um, to and everything in between became, um, as opposed to a gift and something good, became um, objects for subjugation and uh, resentment and and ultimately anger and um, you know homicidal malice. And so, you know, I think this is the problem that we are going to run into, uh, even when they talk about um, you know cultural appropriation and sort of uh, colonial empires and things. Is that we are as Christians less interested in the way that people dress or even even the way that they're governments are comported. I mean, there are better and worse ways of having governments, but, uh, you know, concept, a benign, you know, philosopher king is to be uh, preferred over a, a cruel oligarchy or over a, a fascist dictatorship, over a, even a, an ignorant um, elected, you know, perhaps a, a democratically elected, uh, you know, uh, fool. And so, you know, those are secondary questions, but what's actually going to happen and what we've seen throughout human history is that when the um, actual reconciliation of Christ is beginning to work its way out through uh, first men and women, then, you know, uh, fathers and mothers and parents and children and all of the various um, fundamental intrinsic relations to human beings. Well, then that has no choice but to affect the culture in a way that will ultimately become bring some similarities despite the differences between language and culture and um, tradition and whatnot. And I think that's where, you know, I think about uh, dear friends of ours. I mean, we all have friends all over the world in the Anglican church who, um, have, you know, have, have this remarkably different day to day lives than we do, you know, dress differently, speak differently, um, have different governments and things. And yet when it comes to what fundamentally unites us, not merely the, the external profession of Christ, but the way that that profession has worked itself out in our in our, as it were, Christian culture, there are great similarities. You know, there's great shared prayer concerns. There's great shared commonality across uh, the world. And I think that's where the cynic looks at uh, Western civilization, the history and says, you know, it's all a power grab, all a, um, you know, a cynical uh, colonial power grab that, that marshaled everything, including this quote unquote God to bring forth, you know, the need to um, get mineral rights from South Africa or something, you know, and I'm sure that there were some people who were, who had that mentality, but, but there are Christians there in South Africa to this day and the Sudan and, and Afghanistan and Persia and all the former places where there were formerly no Christians who would say, well, you know, what, like what Joseph says at the end of Genesis, what the devil intended for evil, the Lord has made for good that um, despite the sinfulness of the human vehicle that brought us this message, we have now come to a saving knowledge of God in Christ. And that is a message that will, you know, to the cynic and to the unbeliever will continue to sound like a um, papering over an otherwise uh, power grab, because that's the only, the only true thing in a cynical unbelieving world is, is quest for power and lack thereof or lording over it. And so, and so I'm with you, Matt. I think that that we have learned a lot from the mistakes of the past, um, and I look forward to uh, continuing to grow in the the best way to evangelize. But there are those voices who will look at the Christian missionary work, and particularly places like Afghanistan, they're predominantly non-Christian, as uh, negative realities. You know, people I can imagine saying, "Well, you you put your life on on." Um, you know, in danger. And, and, you know, I've, I read a story about a man who got his kid, wives and wife and kids out 
um, and stayed behind and he hasn't been heard from yet. And I'm sure there's many, many stories like that. And I can hear a, sort of a cynical, unbelieving person saying, well, you know, not that we wish that on you, but, but um, you know, you shouldn't have been there in the first place. And that's just something that an unbelieving world will always look at the Christians in the Colosseum and say, goodness, you know, you seem to be taking this a little too seriously. Um, you seem to be a little too intent on this. And if you just chilled out a little bit, maybe we could have gotten you out earlier. Um, well, and sadly, there will also be people in the church who sit in the Colosseum as well and say, well, you know, those people are too extreme. They should have. For sure. <laughs> they should have. Uh, it's interesting because, you know, the, the Christian woke, I think that the tendency there to explain the commonality you were mentioning a minute ago, if I can go to Mali, for example, and find someone who believes in substitutionary atonement and find someone who has, who has a, a similar understanding of original sin uh, or, or the very same understanding of it. And of course, that's all because we share the same Christ. And the, the, the quote unquote, quote, woke Christian will say, no, that's because of colonialism and this, Malian needs to learn a, a non-white Christ. That's right. A non-white type of theology. The reason like, you're agreeing, like Jesus himself, right? Right, <laughs> right, right, right. The reason you're agreeing is because is because this Your colonized made them. Yeah. Right, right, right. So this person can be a Christian, but he's got to learn a completely different doctrinal system. A different. He's got to, I guess, make one up. It's more consistent with his or her own narrative. Uh, narrative. Right? You just wonder if any of these people who are proposing that actually have any Christian friends from other countries or if they've ever spent any time with with Christians whom they would consider to be, um, you know, brothers and sisters who aren't, you know, white Americans. And and I, I mean, it's just hard for me. And having spent I mean, ever since we went to Trinity which has a, um, a wonderful um, sort of relationship with, with what's now called the global South. But, you know, we've, we house people, we have people from church uh, and then subsequently, and I know you, Matt, have traveled, Nick, you know, all over the world and met people like the, the genuine bonds of Christian affection that I felt with people who are, you know, one generation away from animism in the middle of um, Africa, for instance, or the first convert in their families from Indonesia out of Islam, or, or just um, the first convert of their families out of um, secular, you know, um, nihilism in, in Europe, you know, the, the genuine affection, and as it were, I know it's a trigger word, but colorblind reality of that relationship is something that actually sustains me on a daily basis. When I think about um, the power of God's reconciliation reconciling message for, for sinners. And when I read things like that, and when I hear quote unquote ministers uh, speak in such ways, I, I just wonder, I'm like, do you, have you, have you ever actually experienced anything like this? Because, you know, we house, we have this wonderful uh, new wineskins conference that our diocese has um, supported. And our church has a relationship with the diocese in Kenya, Northern Kenya, um, where Bishop Campicha is the bishop. And every year people are sent here um, for, you know, fellowship building and, and fundraising and all the things that one would uh, coming to uh, the diocese. And the, the amount of joy and camaraderie and deep Christian affection that's experienced in such a small amount of time that then carries over for months and years afterwards is just is remarkable. And, and when I hear people sort of dismiss anything like that could possibly happen as unless it was sort of peeled back and seen as a as a Western colonial power grab, it's just, well, it's just um, it's, it's not the way I don't think Christians should talk. I mean, I can understand why if you didn't believe 
in um, God, you would think that all the money that people are giving to your church to build the beautiful stained glass and the, and the, and the linen that you're using in communion is a waste of money. Um, but if you're, but I get that, but not for a Christian, you know, not, not for a Christian person. And it's the self attestation of these people who are so grateful for the people in whatever generation it was who brought them the gospel in the first place. You know, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring Amen. the good news. And for a, just out of like a purely and sheerly logical process, like if Jesus Christ is the one founder of Christianity and his 12 people had to tell people like, since it started in one place at one time, it must therefore be told to other people in other places at later times. There's no such thing as a self-generated Christian story. It must be passed from the source of the truth, Jesus Christ to other people. That's just how sermons are preached, how stories are told, how messages get passed. Yeah. The juxtaposition be that and, and Islam is interesting again because Islam does have a, a sense in which you have to be you have to adopt Arabic culture in, in many ways yeah. to become a Muslim. You have you you have to to really read the Quran. You you need to know Arabic. You can't you can't just you can it read is it. untranslatable. Yeah. Right. I mean, they have English quote unquote translations, but the but an Orthodox Muslim would not yeah. consider those actual Qurans. You have to you have to know Arabic and and the and the, and the norms, the laws, the Sharia laws. It's, it's, those are all you know from those were embedded in a culture, and then and then it's passed on as the faith goes and is spread by the sword or by the word, whatever it might be. And so there's there's a flattening out of of culture and language and everything else is as as this carries on but jesus was you know just the inclusion of the gentiles and and you're reading through acts and and the apostolic council in, in genesis 15 when they're saying okay yeah the, the gentiles don't have to become jews acts 15 acts 15 yeah. i'm sorry yeah <laughs> there was a certain account of counsel in Genesis 15, but it I read the Bible God and, a long time ago. God and Abram and a bunch of doves <laughs> and like some fire pots. That was the counsel. <laughs> Whatever. All right, all right, all right. Okay, I'm getting. I'm almost 50, so give me a break. <laughs> I'm 50. 50 years old. <laughs> anyway. Acts chapter 15, you know, the, the, the church deciding, okay, you know, we're not going to force these Gentiles to, to adhere to Jewish ceremonial law. That's right. We're not going to make them become Jews to become Christians. And, and so that there, that right there set the stage for, uh, as you're talking about, Nick, the movement of, Amen. of the gospel through all the cultures of the world um, in a way that didn't require all the cultures of the world to become one culture, um, right. but to become one in Christ. But what did, but and then I think what that what that actually sort of passed down. I mean, again, not to not to just harp on it, but if you you begin to look at the principle of subsidiarity, the idea that you know the most uh, localized unit is is the most powerful, right? And so you look at the transformation of the human heart. You go to the men and women. You go to parents and child, children. You go to um, extended family networks that then incorporate, you know, families and, and tribes and towns and nations and world and all predicated upon like what Paul says in um, Galatians, you know, what do you have that you did not receive? You know, all of a sudden mm -hmm. money becomes different. Responsibility becomes different. Um, judgment and redemption becomes different. And it, it began to permeate these cultures from the inside out. I mean, that that's the difference between, between being converted at the point of a sword and having your actual heart uh, changed and renovated and, and then that work its way out. And I think that's where 
you know, unsurprisingly, when we see the actual arguments against Christianity as a quote unquote colonial power around the world historically and currently, it's always pointed at the places where this this these sort of prohibitions, you know, for how we are comported our body and how our families are structured and how our, you know, sexual lives are, are ordered and how our re- responsibilities and relations are actually um, constituted. That's what's pushed back on, you know, this sort of Western idea, the Western morality, you know, the 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 what is it, cis heteropatriarchal. Um, whatever it is like, that's just another word for from the beginning, he created the male and female, um, Jesus says to the Pharisees and Sadducees. I mean, that's a, that's, and, and so I think what we're, you know, I mean, there's, a, we've gone all over the place here, but I think one of the things we will continue to see is that there is going to be a rejection of this idea of Christianity um, as a religious structure being imposed from the outside in. And I think there's a right, I think that's rightly to be rejected, but they will never be able to stop people's profession of what they actually have been given to believe from the inside out. And that's where the power of the martyrs, I mean, God bless them, you know, that will continue to take place over around in the East um, and in non-Christian countries. And perhaps, you know, as it, as the West continues to become less and less Christian, it'll be more prevalent here. I mean, I hope that's not the case, but if, and when it is the case, um, we have 2000 plus years of history to point towards the fact that, um, that God will not abandon his people in the midst of their need and the courage and the peace that the world does not know will actually be evinced even in the midst of some of the most horrendous circumstances. And so, you know, none of us are looking for that and we avoid that, but we don't avoid it um, at the cost of our souls. And I think that's what the world will continue to watch come what may. <laughs> Speaking of horrendous circumstances, I do want to give you guys a chance to respond to something that is going to sound familiar to you. It's a it's a question that has been responded to, J.D., as you note, often in every generation, but is one that we still hear when tragedies happen in the world, when Christians and other people come under persecution, when disasters happen, and it's simply... If you worship this supposedly all-powerful and good God, what the heck is going on? Why is the world the way it is if your God is so good? I was thinking, it's a little bit like, I guess if someone were to come to the prodigal son and say, if your dad is good, why are you here in the mud pile, the pigs? And the prodigal son, you know, if he had his wits about him, which he later did, would say, well, I'm here because I left my father's house. And when I leave my father's house, then, well, I will find myself in the pigsty. Uh, I don't think Jesus was telling a parable about the world necessarily as he was about uh, other things, but, but it does apply. Um, the world, beginning with Adam and, and continuing to the present day, has, has taken the inheritance and left the father's house. And we, are, we have been, since that time, trying to feed ourselves with the pods the pigs should eat. And we're we're hungry, <laughs> and and we're and we're biting one another, and it's the world is in ruin because of that. That's not God's doing; that's our doing. God is sovereign in the sense that He, of course, just like the Father, said, "Okay, go your own way." And He's sovereign in the sense that He brings punishment, and He He nothing not, not even a sparrow falls to the ground apart from His will. With that being said, He's He the the, the reason the cause for all this needs to be placed squarely within the realm of human sin, Mm. which God in his sovereignty uses for his own good purposes, but which he didn't cause. 
So what is he doing right now in Afghanistan? I don't know. Why is there suffering and turmoil in, in Afghanistan? Did God have to permit that? Yes, absolutely. Um, is God bringing about some purpose of his own through this? Yep, absolutely. That's what we're promised, yeah. Exactly. And, and, and yet, at the same time, the, the, the pain, the turmoil, the tor- torment can all ultimately be traced back to the human rebellion against God. None of that would mm. be there were it not for, were not for that. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned that. And I was I just read I talked about before um, an article that was in um, that Ross Douthat referenced in a recent op ed, uh, which was um, was sort of interesting. But it was this article in First Things was more interesting by a guy named Paul Kingsnorth, who wrote a um, Buckmaster trilogy. I don't know. It was recommended to me and I bought it and I'm working its way through. But he was a self-professed. It's fascinating. If you don't subscribe to First Things, it's worth going there. But it's called The Cross in the Machine. And I won't, won't talk about it for too long, but basically he describes growing up. He must not be much older than we are. He's probably much, he's probably really old like you are, Matt, but he, um, <laughs> he, uh, he, he talks about growing up in uh, the eighties in the church of, or in England and how um, basically uh, uh, sort of unremarkable and irrelevant the church of England was, even though he knew the Lord's prayer and he went to Christmas thing and he talks about all this. And then he becomes a, a Buddhist for a while and goes through all these things, but he has this one reflection on on, on a poem that he wrote, and it says this, he said, the story of Christianity, wrote Moriarty, is the story of humanity's rebellion against God. This is his confession of becoming a Christian, Paul Kingsnorth. He says this, I never thought of that ancient, tired religion in this way before, never had reason to, but as I did now, I could feel something happening, some inner shift, some coming together of previously scattered parts designed to fit, though I'd never known it, into a quite unbreakable whole. This was a truth I would surrender to. And I thought that it was fascinating that this man was talking about having lived in a Christian culture in the West, you know, in the UK, had all the trappings of even going to church, knowing the Lord's Prayer, like going to Christmas and Easter and the plum pudding and all this stuff, and yet somehow had never been taught that it was a message of humanity's rebellion against God. And so, again, I commend the entire article to you, but basically he he says, after a lifetime of searching, that makes sense. Like that there's not only something wrong with the world, like, you know, we have a disease, but the disease is, is in, in no small way self-inflicted. Like we are in active rebellion against goodness, truth, beauty, and love. And, you know, I read that and I said, well, goodness gracious, like I preach that we've taught that that's something I believe, but to hear it from the mouth of a formerly unbelieving person as a, as a, as a sign of shock and awe just meant that maybe we should say it louder and more often, you know, because I was like, you know, it's like someone says like, gosh, these, these donuts really taste good. They're like, where have you been? Like who, who says donuts don't taste good? Like what human being? Um, and it's like, well, you know, I didn't realize that Christianity was all about humanity's rebellion, sin, and the redemption found in Christ. It's like, well, well, Lord have mercy. And of course we've talked about this before. I mean, the fact that the fact that someone who grew up in the, in a quote unquote Christian society in the West could basically be uninspired by um he even goes through i mean it's, you have to read it we should have a whole class show on it because he talks about the two different kind of vicars the one who has like an affected accent who talks in like old english and tries to have like an air of sophistication and, and um, mystery and then like the new hip guy you know who talks about like you know football and has like a spiked haircut and wears you know jeans and everything and at the very least he says well you know, I at least appreciate the old sort of, you know, sophisticated guy that was trying to point towards something other than this world, um, you know, at the very least. But anyway, the, the point is that when it comes to the question of God 
in his sovereignty. I mean, the question of evil itself is the question of God. I mean, if there's no God, then there's no evil. I mean, there's no good. There's nothing but um, synapses and, and accidents, you know? And so the question, the reason that we cry out like the psalmist to God is because we believe that he's just and good. And we don't understand the final reconciliation of it all, but we see the, the temporal reconciliation of our rebellion uh, to him in the death of Christ for our sake. And so whatever sort of argument we have with God is tempered, for lack of a better word, by our complicity in the brokenness of the world itself. And that that's a message, you know, we've been reading through John 6, you know, that that's a hard message that some of the disciples leave. Like, well, um, that's also nothing new. You know, this is too hard for me. I'd rather live in agnostic despair. Um, it's like, well, okay. But um, like Peter, there will be people and have been and will always be who say, well, this is a hard teaching. There's no, no line, no getting around that, but where else are we supposed to go? Because you have the keys to eternal life. You know, I'm sympathetic to the late uh, Gerhard Ferdy who talked about um, the, the, the question of the bondage of the will and God's sovereignty and theodicy. You know, he said, um, whenever he was asked to speak about anything, he, no matter what it was, like, can you give us a men's retreat on, um, you know, 10 ways to pray for your wife? He's like, sure. I'm always, and he's like, I always was going to talk about the bondage of the will and the odysseys <laughs> because, <laughs> because it got every single juice firing, you know, who is God? Can we trust him? Who am I? What's wrong with the world? Like all of the questions are asked and all of these questions are finally answered, not by um, intellectual assent, but by devotional submission to, um, to God and his majesty. I mean, you go back and read Romans 9, 10, and 11, you know, at the end of 11, Paul doesn't say, um, at the midst of wrestling through unbelieving Israel and all of the history of God's promises. And what does this mean for God's sake? He's, he doesn't say, well, now I've got it figured out. So go and do likewise. He says, how unsearchable and majestic are the riches and majesty of God. You know, he falls on his face um, before, before the God who's deigned to save him, even him, as he says. And I think that's where we can't bring that about, but we can continue to preach it and trust that just as it has happened in our lives, it will happen in others. And I know that those missionaries in Afghanistan, if they didn't have some connection to that saving hope in the midst of difficult teaching, they wouldn't have gone to, you know, arguably some of the most difficult places in the world to preach this life-giving hope. But because they did, some time down the road, some generation of former, formerly non-Christian Afghani is going to say, well, um, this is a strange story, but uh, some guy stayed behind. I remember when that weird thing happened 20 years ago, some guy stayed behind and, um, you know, his last, his last witness to me was he handed me a Bible or something before he was hauled away. You know, I mean, that, that story will happen because it has happened. And, you know, it's, it's humbling that, that we don't have that story to a certain degree, but we certainly stand in solidarity with those people past, present and future uh, for whom it's, for whom it's a reality. Yeah, I was reading uh, Philippians one this morning is, that's where I am in my um, Bible you know, devotional system. And That's your first of six Bible studies on uh, <laughs> on Wednesday morning. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, yeah. It, it would, uh, I was just thinking, what would I what would I be writing if I were Paul? And Paul's there. He's he's, he's either in Caesarea in prison or he's in Rome in prison. One of those places. I'm not quite sure. And you know, his his he's celebrating because. Every, all of the guards know that he's in chains for Christ. And, and so he's really happy about that. And he really wishes he would die because he could go be with the Lord. But he's pretty sure that God wants him to stay because there's more work to do. And I said, yeah, that's so far away from, I guess, 
I hope maybe, maybe I think in those times God's grace does maybe I know I know it does. It, it brings about a new attitude for those in the in the in the pressure in the in the in the oven in the furnace. Um, but just thinking about it, lying in bed on on Wednesday morning, and saying, "Man, I'd be complaining. I'd be like, I've been out here preaching the gospel, Lord. Here I am in prison, and then and then while I'm in prison, my competitors have been." You know, making my name, you know, you know, saying bad things about me, and but Paul, you know, sees all this as uh, because he knows Christ and because he knows what he knows about the sovereignty of God, and he's an apostle. He rejoices. He says, God must have put me in this prison so that he could make his name known, name, name known to these these Gentile guards, and so he yeah. has. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Um, and and who knows what God's going to do through the various Christian missionaries who That's remain. Right in in afghanistan as they die before they die if they don't die who knows what he's going to do uh because his power is always made perfect in weakness amen well you know and he mentions that in, in philippians 4 a little a couple of chapters later uh a verse that has become more meaningful to me as i go older when he talks about um rejoicing great love uh, four, 11, four, 10 and 11. Now I rejoice greatly in the Lord that last you've re, uh, revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you have no opportunity to show it. And he says this, I'm not saying this out of need for I have learned to be content regardless of my circumstances. I've learned how to live humbly and how to abound. Um, I'm accustomed to any and every situation to being filled and being hungry, to having plenty and having need. He goes through and, and he talks about this reality of, of peace in the midst of, of want and of plenty and I always read that initially as a young man as sort of a challenge, like, well, I'm just going to have to grin and bear it um, when hard times come. But then I always stumbled over, I didn't really read until recently, in the past five or 10 years, this learned, you know, this, I've learned these things. Like, it's not, it's not an overnight thing, but I have come to, um, I've come to this place where uh, the Lord has not let me down before, and he's not going to let me down now. And if this does, in fact, mean more suffering and hardship, well, then I've already been through that once. And so I've learned in the midst of a feather bed and a stone you know, cell to be content. And I think that um, again, I, um, we all have our own stories and of course we can, we can compare, um, you know, relative, uh, points of discomfort and challenge and, and come out higher or, you know, better or worse on, on the relative scale. But I think fundamentally the Christian conviction, whether it's, uh, witnessing in the midst of plenty or witnessing in the midst of want is that, um, there's a confidence that God will in fact continue to be faithful to his promises come what may. And I think that's where, you know, as, 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 Again, the cynical unbeliever may say that we are sitting here from our, you know, relatively safe uh, perches, um, half a world away, um, feeling empathy for our brothers and sisters and sort of a, um, you know, it's very convenient for us. It's like, well, you know, you can believe that, uh, but we can actually simply confess that we are, we are mourning with those who mourn and we're weeping with those who weep. And there is a, um, a sincere and, and genuine affection for even those, for particularly those we may not have met who are suffering for the sake of Christ. Um, and uh, we're upholding them in prayer and, and walking through this veil of tears with them in the hope of the, um, uh, that has been set before us in Christ. And so, you know, I think that's where um, the witness of the church will continue to be foolishness and a stumbling block. And yet uh, the power of the cross, it will be the power of salvation for those who believe. Well, we certainly keep the people of Afghanistan in our prayers, all of those who are under threat. We pray that the Lord would watch out for them. 
that his kingdom would come and his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is going to be all the time that we have this week. We do thank you so much, as always, for listening. If you want to keep the conversation going, you can be in touch with us. Rate and review the podcast on iTunes. Send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to J.D. Koch and to Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon, and Lord willing, we'll be back next week. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh,